And now, coming to you from the outermost limits of the bleeding edge of the future, recorded on technology designed and built years ago, but polished and presented like it's brand new, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf on the Crew Street Podcast! Wait, what? I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, which you can now listen to on the radio of your 1953 Packard Coupe. Um, were, were that... Were that the, the, the backstory to this, ladies and gentlemen is that Jonathan thinks I should get a new computer because mine is, by the standards of the Apple Corporation, a 1953 Packard. Uh, It's it's about seven or eight years old. I take it into the Genius Bar, and they call other people over to, look at this, you remember these things? You were a kid when this was made. made. Okay, and I just live with that and eventually will buy a new one. Well, I don't think that's quite actually what inspired the introduction, because believe it or not, I actually wrote it down before I called you at all, because I was thinking about the possible subject for this podcast and some of the other things that have been happening in my life over the past week. It just happens to segue very nicely into just how appallingly decrepit your old MacBook is. Well, it's it's appalling, but, you know, it's it's. It's a sentimental thing. I will say one thing. Um, I, no, I'm not going to talk about Apple products versus Hewlett Packard versus other Dell versus all the computers I've had over the time. But it, it is odd that you know you have uh, a fairly expensive item that has a half life of maybe three years on average. I'm not going to complain about that. I need to have a new one, so forth and so on. Um, and that was what I was thinking we were going to talk about. What did you think we were going to talk about? Well, I figured what we'd talk about was briefly, I guess, what we've been doing science fictionally and otherwise, and then sub- segue into the subject of your email to me about politics okay. and science fiction. Okay. As far as what I've been doing, actually, there's the same question. Uh, I know you've been busily editing books, and, and, and the year's best is now done. Yay! Uh, now can expect it shortly. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of the things which, as we mentioned last week when we were talking, is very important to people like me still finishing up or revising the Hugo Ballad to know what short fiction is respected by editors I like, because I'm not going to read 500 short stories between now and the, and, and, and the Hugo deadline. Well, you know, you're going to have to make your own decision about how much you want to read and where you're going to read. There's certainly a lot out there to read. But I'm glad that people are nominating and voting for for the Hugos. Um, I am. I know you are. I hope everybody will. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm going to be sort of absolutely overt and distasteful for 30 seconds and say I hope to see our names on the the ballot when the time comes. But don't really expect to. But, you know, we appreciate your love if you you choose to nominate us. Setting that aside, my week has been... I've just read a new previously on... Well, yet to be published Ian MacDonald novella. Mm -hmm called Time Excellent. Was, which is terrific. Uh, I've just seen one of the novellas that I've edited for Tor.com published this week. That would be Passing Strange by Ellen Clagius, which has been receiving okay. spectacular reviews. Mm-hmm. Though my wife has assured me I have to be good because I've been talking about it so much that I have to sort of like slow down about talking about that. Um, what else? I've read sort of some some short stories, some new short stories for various projects, which is that it's great. About to send out invitations for another, whilst reading submissions for Infinity Wars, which will be out later this year. I can't imagine how much reading that you do of stuff that never gets published. 
this is something I've, I've, I've talked to you about this. I've talked to Sheila Williams about it. Uh, I've, I've, I've talked to other editors because uh, the stuff I read at least has been vetted by somebody. This may be an argument about self-publishing versus not self-publishing. I depend on good editors to show me good fiction. But you, how much of your time, apart from novels, apart from stuff you're reading on your own, as an editor, how much of your time is spent reading stuff that will never see the light of day, if you can help us? Not, th- not that much, really, I guess. I mean, I wouldn't want to exaggerate it, Gary. Um, because I tend to work on, solic- on solicited projects rather than open well, submission subjects, someone like my colleague Sean Wallace, who you know, reads the open slush for Clark's World and the Dark, <laughs> is reading hundreds and hundreds of stories every, every month that are never going to be published. Uh, so a significant portion of his reading, much less of mm. mine. And also, I'm well aware that a lot of the stuff that I don't publish, I mean, there are two stories that I rejected last year for one project ended up somewhere else. Uh-huh. You know, so... Well, and you're dealing, as you say, with accomplished writers. Yeah. Uh, which, Generally. Which would, in, which, it, which would intimidate me enormously. Although, I've talked to you about this. I've talked to other editors occasionally when somebody who is a respected writer... Uh, sends in something that doesn't work. I can actually think of novels uh, as well as stories. You, I at least have this mixed feeling. Uh, I'm, I'm only asked to give advice. I'm never actually editing these things. I have this mixed feeling between, on the one hand, this is somebody I've admired my entire life, and on the other hand, I feel I should protect this person by not recommending that the story appear in print. In other words... To some extent, your respect for the author colors your decision about taking a story, which otherwise you might, or as I say, I can think of a couple of novel examples. We're not going to mention any names here. But do you ever get a sense that you're protecting an author from themselves? Once or twice, certainly, yes. Sometimes with newer and -and up-and-coming writers who have maybe a backlog of material they're trying to get published because they've finally broken Mm -hmm. through. And there's now active interest in the, in the work. So there is a bit of that. And I have passed on some stories from writers whose work I adore who have since passed yeah. away and the work's being released posthumously. Mm-hmm. And so I have found that it has been worth, you know, like reasonable to um, turn around and kind of go, like, no, I'm not going to release that. I don't think I you know, or sh- should add that. And it's difficult. I mean, when you've loved somebody's work for your whole life, and then, you know, like, wow, oh, my God, here's a story from, insert name here, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then that's difficult. I mean, I, I t- once was part of turning, uh, well, we turned down a book from Harlan Ellison once, a publishing house mm-hmm. I was part of. Uh, I've been I've turned down posthumous stories from Ray Lafferty and Avram Davidson. Um, I've turned down stories from all sorts of people, and it it is never easy. And probably the hardest ones are where you have a terrific working relationship with the writer in question, and you've accepted a lot of their work, and you find yourself rejecting some of it. And you're concerned. I mean, you get concerned that you're going to somehow damage the relationship because they feel you are symp- sympathetic to their work, and now exactly. you're not. Now you're not. And you know, you, you want people to still want to, want to send you work. The, you know, the corollary, of course, and this is, I guess, part of the protection argument, both for themselves and for yourself. There's the argument that if you 
if you publish work that either doesn't fit the project, and that's happened more often, the two stories I rejected last year that were subsequently published simply didn't fit the project I was working on as I saw it. Exactly. Yeah, and if you have, you have a thematic structure to the book, so obviously that and it, gives you an easy out. And in that instance, they weren't actually either, you know, like a, a tight thematic solicitation. I, opened, yeah. I, I had an open submission situation for something and was sort of going, send me stuff. And then I'm going, well, this is great, and it's sold immediately thereafter, but it just doesn't fit what I'm doing. Well, there are authors, uh, I'm sure that you're more aware of this than I am, who are astonishingly uh, meticulous self-critics. In other words, you will not see, as far as I can tell, and I've talked to you and other editors, you will not see a Ted Chang story that hasn't been polished like a diamond uh, because he spends so much time on it. Other people will... Go ahead. Did you were gonna? No, I was gonna say. I think that's there. pretty much true for it for Ted. For a lot of the either a more obsessive or b more professional, and I'm not gonna say too professional because you'd be surprised what some people send out. But generally, yeah. I'd, I would find that the more professional types do polish the work until it's just right. People who are aiming to be very prolific end up coming to you looking just to place that that final work that they have, you know, rather they just want it published. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, reading. Well, it's a... Oh, what have I been reading? Uh, well, let me see. This, uh, within, we're within weeks now of uh, some important February books coming out, like Cam Hurley's The Stars Are Legion. Um, a, new Peter, a new Peter Beagle short novel. Uh, not a major one. Not a major one, frankly, by... by, by the standards of Peter Beagle, but as well written as you could expect from somebody who is uh, who is simply a, a, a graceful writer. There are writers who you know whose prose sucks you in, no matter how relatively slight the story might be. Um, and then here's the thing that leads into what I was going to talk about. I've been reading a new novel by by Norman Spinrad, uh, one of the last still active veterans of the New Wave, uh, whose whose reputation. Uh, initially, whose controversial reputation goes all the way back to his serializing Bug Jack Barron in New Worlds, and as I recall the story, resulting in the British government withdrawing an arts grant from New Worlds magazine because this book was so offensive and so profane, and it dealt with a, a, a basically television celebrity who becomes a national political force in all kinds of unfortunate ways. Um, and, which made me think, okay, maybe we should have listened to Norman Spinrad back then. Um, and he went on and had a very interesting career with some kind of uh, early, uh, what you might call Baroque space opera things like Child Fortune. Um, and uh, hasn't I've not seen a lot from him in, in recent years, but this thing called The People's Police, which is a very odd book, and I've not finished it, so I shouldn't say anything too definitive, but it's partly a political protest movement about the police in New Orleans deciding to refuse to serve eviction notices on themselves and other people. This is in some near future where another economic catastrophe has resulted in another housing crisis. So it's partly a political protest novel, partly a voodoo novel because there are voodoo gods in it, and it's in New Orleans, and it's partly near future science fiction. There's some uh, climax climatic catastrophes that have happened and so forth and so on. The part that interests me is the part that's clearly a political protest, clearly asking if the police 
would organize on behalf of the people and against the banks and the Wall Street lizards, I think he calls them, um, that it would create a kind of unrealistic but interesting revolutionary uh, situation in individual cities like New Orleans. I may be misrepresenting what he ends up saying in this novel because I've got about 100 pages to go in it, but it made me think of two related things, which I mentioned in the email. Once is it about, uh, one is that about three days ago, it was in the news reported widely that the number one book, not just the number one fiction book, but the number one book on Amazon about three days ago, January 25th, was George Orwell's 1984. The number five book in classic American literature, quote unquote, one of those Amazon categories that you have no idea what it really means, was Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, a 1935 novel about uh, a forceful, uh, uneducated, um, demagogic personality preaching about the danger of welfare cheats, uh, the danger of immigrants, the danger, in other words, about an, the rise of an American fascist dictator. Uh, so here, here we have two of the best-selling books in the United States. One was published in 1948 in England. The other was published in 1935. And there aren't any contemporary or even in the last 20 years science fiction or fantasy novels I can think of that even attempted to do what these books attempted to do. Does anybody write that kind of politically committed science fiction anymore? Well, remember, at least in the case of Orwell, it's political satire, which it's is important. Satire. And political, that yeah. then segues to, yes, of course there is, because James Morrow writes exactly that kind of thing. Um, it's, it's true, but he tends to have very specific targets about religious intolerance, for example. Sure. Um, and he's, 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 he's a very effective religious satirist. He's been satirizing fundamentalism for much of his career. Um, there was some of this in Vonnegut, less so in the late Vonnegut, but it was certainly there in, in, in much of what he did. And before somebody uh, writes into the podcast and says, what about all the dystopias that have been going on? My other concern is this. The dystopian fiction is more popular than ever, but it seems to have lost its political edge. In other words, you look at the most popular dystopia of the last 10 years, both mm. in terms of literature and film, is The Hunger Games. And The Hunger Games deals with an elite exploiting a proletariat. It's a very classic situation. True, but then but those, dy those dystopias that you're talking about, the dystopias of um, you know, Susan Collins, of um, James Dasher, of those kinds of series, mm -hmm. those books are aimed at a young adult audience, and generally the political point is there, but it's not the, um, the purpose of the narrative, where the Orwell book exactly. and the Lewis was the purpose of the narrative. Now, if you look at other science fiction of the last 25, 30, 40 years, you can certainly see books where... The political point is essential to the narrative, but they're not satires or, or comedies, and they're not necessarily about fascist dictators. The most obvious one cited regularly in our podcasts would have to be Kim Stanley Robinson. Mm -hmm. Pacific Edge is a political text. Yeah. The Gold Coast is a political text. Antarctica is a political text. The entire Mars trilogy is, to a greater or lesser extent, the Science of the Capital series is. Uh, I also think, although they are, depending on your 
taste and preferences dystopian. The uh, mm. feminist women only science fictional dystopias, you know, like The Gate to Women's Country by Sherry Tepper, like mm. uh, The Shore of Women by Pamela Sargent. You know, the, the, they exist in this kind of space as well. And that doesn't even begin to get to the many. Yeah, you're going back. That doesn't even get to 30 or so years. Well, I mean, okay. 30 to 40 years. I guess so, but then you know, go back two years, you're going to talk about uh, pa- you know, Paolo Bacigalupi's book uh, about envir- environmentalism, mm. uh, and that's definitely a dystopian political science fiction novel, The Water Knife. Um, uh-huh. If you look at any of the works of uh, Bruce Sterling, or probably Paul McCauley, or, you know, any one of a or bunch Ken of McClough. others. It certainly came McLeod. It was always think, been, and Ian, and Ian, yeah. and B&M Banks as well. Yeah, they're all yeah, intensely exactly. political texts. They may not overtly talk about a political system. They may background it, but you know that that political push is there. Now, is there a taste for that kind of for the kind of overtly satirical fiction, the Catch Twenty Two, the um, Nineteen Eighty Four, that kind of a book? I don't know if until now there has been. And one of the things is, given the world we've moved into in the last week, uh, it's going to take a while before you see that happen. You'll see it happen in short fiction first because of the shorter publication turnover times. And then you'll see it in um, novels in two, three, four, five years, I would think. It'll probably take about two or three years to really begin to, if that's how authors are responding to it. Uh, but I'm not sure I'm completely convinced that you can argue, and I know you're not arguing heavily, you were asking the question, that you can say mm-hmm. that people aren't writing overtly political science fiction when we're seeing in science fiction and fantasy in different ways. I mean, some of the books we that we praised the most just from last year, like mm-hmm. uh, Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff, like um, Kids Johnson's book, uh, The Dream Quest of or non of the Tree. The Dreamcast developed Bow, uh, and so on, are definitely overtly political stories and overtly political actions to, to write and create. I'm sure Cameron, Cameron Hurley would argue that her Bell Dame Apocrypha series is. Now, oh, it's, it's to my shame I that I don't read enough mainstream fiction to know whether there is the same satirically political vein in mainstream fiction right now as there was 40 years ago? Um, I, I, I don't read enough of it either to know. I mean, one of the other books which has come up for discussion in the last week or so, really, is Philip Roth's The Plot Against America, which is, again, a dystopian novel based on Charles Lindbergh getting elected president on his America First campaign, which, of course, is directly echoed by our current president, who probably doesn't even know he's directly echoing it. Um, so I think we met, well, I think we're going to see a reaction in mainstream fiction. You're right. My question about and, and one of the books which is not I've not heard as being um, resurrected in, 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 in the in the Trump era is, is Fahrenheit 451. Perhaps because that's specifically about censorship, and censorship has not become a major issue yet. Although it's rapidly becoming one when you look at the National Park Service and other organizations within the government being muted in effect. Um, so I, I, I guess you're right, but the kind of sophisticated political discussion that goes on in novels from Ian Banks to 
to Ken McLeod, to, to Cameron Hurley, isn't going to reach a general audience that way. Science fiction, I think you're right, science fiction readers are accustomed to uh, fairly sophisticated political ideas that might impact the way society evolves over the next several centuries. I think the concern you're getting now, the concern that's reflected in 1984, is one of immediacy. It's the kind of immediacy that you you do see addressed in, in Cory Doctorow's young adult novels, uh, for example. He's very concerned about what you can do as an activist right now. Um, and I think the reason people are attracted to 1984 is that even in 1948, it was science fiction only by virtue of the ways in which technology was applied. There wasn't any real new technology in 1984. Definitely. So the, the concern that this can happen to us now is one that I don't think is addressed by dystopias that evolve 200 and 300 years from now. Probably not. I mean, I think one thing I'd say that is key that we should bear in mind is that 1984 was written in 1948, three years after the end of the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And... 11 years after the commencement of various actions related to it, I guess. So you have to allow it's going to take a little time to see what kind of reaction you're going to get from artists. I mean, I spent the last week going to see Bruce Springsteen concerts, and mm -hmm. at the very first concert he talked about the duty of artists to observe and report. It takes time for what's happening to be processed And I think it's fair to say that for many people, maybe because they were living in a bubble, maybe because it just seemed mm -hmm. unlikely, the apparent rapid political change of the last 15 months was almost unexpected for many of us in the West. The idea that Brexit could happen, the idea that the current political change in the United States could happen, and then mm -hmm. the, the flurry, the, the, the flurry of activity in this past week as the new... Um, U.S. political administration begins to attempt to uh, enact its policies, uh, many of which we don't know really very much about, many of which we can't really assess because they are you know, ill-defined, ill-stated. Um, yeah, you know, and look, uh, we had an example here, just, just sort of coming to the real world. Uh, yesterday, a media outlet reported a change to U.S. Uh, visa policies that would have blocked a lot of Australians from readily entering the United States. And then it turned out that, no, that wasn't strictly true. Something else had happened. There was all the talk this week about the Parks Wildlife Service and the, and the EPA right. and NASA and all of their social media accounts being blocked. Turns out, though, that that's almost a standard policy of change of administration. Everybody's went, well, this is a terrible thing. There wasn't a clear time-limited statement. A, a lot, some, of, some of what's being done in the United States right now, unfortunately, appears to be routine things done badly, so they're not stated in a routine manner. So there is that need to sort of allow things to evolve a little. Some things are patently outrageous and appalling, things like the changes in the last 24 hours to immigration from Muslim countries into the United States, all that kind of stuff. Now, yeah, if, if, if we in the week we're living in, when it's happening, don't know what to make of it, what can, pe you know, how, what can artists do yet? Obviously, there, there will be, you know, there will be uh, motivation on an individual level in the real world, but for their art, it's going to take a little while. And I don't, I, th I think 
what science fiction at least has struggled with with a lot for the last 10 years has been thing you know, adapting to things like climate change uh changes to economic systems those sorts of things now it's got this mammoth political change in the west and i realize that this is a very western focused view of things if you look at anywhere else in the world uh there are all kinds of uh political chaos that those of us who are insulated in the wealthier west tend to ignore so the science fiction coming out of countries in iraq like iraq or anywhere else in yeah. in, in, their, in that that region, <clears throat> or in India and Pakistan, or in Africa, they are much more engaged with these things and much more overtly political. I would say something like Nick Wood's book from last year, Anzanian uh, Bridges, would be a fine example of that. Uh-huh. And I'm sure our friend Jeff Ryman, uh, who has been doing an article about uh, African science fiction writers, would be able to cite a suite of examples. So I guess one of the things for people like us to do is to be more aware ourselves so that we can talk to you, our listening audience, about the kind of works that we think that will be of interest. And I, I guess also to, to flag the idea that sometimes the way that you're going to see politics appear in your fiction mm-hmm. isn't going to be as an overt or well, uh, well, Orwellian-type statement where you, you, you've got a political satire about a particular system, but no. it will be more subtle, more critical. Um, all, I mean, it, it, it is trite, very trite, to say that all science fiction is political, but it's also kind of true. Any, any, one of the first acts in science fiction and fantasy is to design the world you're going to live in. It's to make the assumptions mm-hmm. based upon the economic system. That is political, you know. Lord of the Rings is political. So it's just a matter of how overt. And, and yeah, invent, inventing a world has to be a political act. I agree, and I also agree that uh, that we're not going to see. If we're talking about an actual response to Trumpism, whatever that may turn out to be, after the first week or two weeks, we won't see that for years. And I think one of the dangers that uh, that I have as a reviewer and that we probably have as podcasters is is looking for a response from books like the Spin book, for example. The People's Police clearly was a novel that was finished well before Trumpism. It's not a response. Sorry, which novel I lost you in the sound for a second there, Gary? The, 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 the People's Police. Oh, yes, yes, okay. Uh, so, yeah, this, this is something, and any novel we expect to see this year is one that was written before this year's events occurred. Um, and I think you're right that climate change has certainly been a focus of uh, a lot of science fiction. But as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is that just becoming... An assumption? I think it is. I think it's an, uh, an underlying part of a contemporary worldview, and I think a lot of... Well, I, th- I also think a, a fair number of science fiction writers take the idea seriously that you're trying to phrase things in terms of what if. And if you're phrasing things in terms of what mm-hmm. if, that means how do we... What, what situation are we in, and how do we potentially get out of it? I mean, I talked in Drowned Worlds, the anthology I did last year, about the idea that science fiction was about problem solving and about things being solvable problems. So there is a, yeah. at the moment, I think, an, you know, a need, a really deep need to find a way of showing the problems that we're faced with now being solved in fiction without being Pollyanna-ish, being 
plausible, being believable, being substantial. And I think it's going to take a while for that work to really float through. I mean, we're seeing some of it, but it's, 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 you know, it's, it's happening. It's being built into what we're seeing, but it takes time. Well, it's, uh, it's something we'll, we'll come back to, I suppose, when we have a chance to talk about uh, Ken Stanley Robinson's New York 2140, because it's clear that there is a sense of optimism in that novel, which is in some ways is surprising, considering the catastrophe that, uh, that precedes it, that sets the, 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 the stage for it. And when science fiction focuses, focuses on what's solvable, uh, that's different from focusing on what's avoidable. And my question is, uh, both in terms of Stan Robinson's novel and in terms of Paolo Bacigalupi's uh, The Drowned Cities, the, the young adult novels, uh, are we, have we moved beyond even worrying about whether this kind of climate catastrophe is avoidable? Are we assuming it's not? And therefore, the new problem for science fiction is to deal with the solvability of the crisis. In other words, how do we survive in the ruins? How do we make the best of the situation? which essentially is already a done deal as far as the climate is concerned, as far as the rising sea level are concerned, and as far as coastal cities basically being turned into future versions of Venice. I think so, yes. Okay, uh, now there was a, this is interesting to me, because there was a period in science fiction about 60 or 70 years ago when the preoccupation was nuclear devastation, not global warming. And in, in, for a period of time in the 50s and 60s, it seemed like the default position of far future science fiction was there was some atomic war somewhere in the past. In other words, there was an inevitability to atomic war. And for a period of time, you get stories, some of which became classic novels like A Canticle for Leibowitz, in which the author simply began by assuming that at some point, if not in their lifetimes, within the century after they were writing, there would be a mass of nuclear war, and that became the default position. Uh, that no longer is the default position, although we may start seeing nuclear war fictions again in the next few years. Is the default position now that climate change is going to be a catastrophe that we can't avoid, and therefore we're now focusing on how to deal with it best? I think it's uh, slightly different from that, actually. I think that the threat of nuclear war was a tragedy that had not commenced but that we were afraid of. Climate change is a tragedy that's happened. It's just how much it keeps happening. That's a good point. And so uh, this is more, it would be physically impossible, but this is more like science fiction written after they've uh, launched the missiles but before they landed. Um, you, know, <laughs> you know, climate change is, if 97% of the world's scientists are to be believed... Uh, a real thing. And if the majority of those scientists are to be believed, it is happening in a particular way, and we are already, what, three consecutive of the, of the hottest years on record, uh, all yeah. kinds of changes at, in the, at the polls, and all this other kind of stuff. It seems Pollyanna-ish and wish-fulfillment-like in the extreme to come up with a situation where that those enormous geophysical processes, climatological processes, don't play out. Maybe they can be mitigated, uh, but we are talking about, you know, mitigation rather than prevention now. 
you know, yeah. moved, moved past that. And also, it, it's the, you know, you, you talked about the Will McIntosh phrase, you know, coined uh, t- name, uh, Slow Apocalypse, some while ago on the right. podcast when he was with that novel out. And it is that slow apocalypse. We are looking to mitigate a slow apocalypse, and that's what you will see in science fiction because that's what we are living through. A t- a t- you know, the next hundred years will be be that time. And, it, you know, I understand, well, I think I understand the, Stan- you know, the Kim Stanley Robinson approach with New York 2140, which is you have to look at the events that are happening in a realistic, plausible, and responsible way, but that it's equally responsible to talk about how we can how, how we can survive them and do more than endure those times and ultimately come out the other side into a, a newly balanced world that has beauty and value in it, even if it's fundamentally different from the world we're living in now. That's the story of science fiction right now. I think you can I see it in true. stories like Elves of Antarctica from uh, Paul McCauley, which he's turning into a novel right now that'll come out at the end of the years. So, in fact, I think he has obviously he's finished mm-hmm. a book called Austral, which will, I, which I think is, is in that kind of a thing. And so, a book like you know, to have twenty one forty and Austral come out in the same year, and some some other works, I think will show a similar kind of story. Uh, and you, you even see it in other works. I mean, uh, you have a copy, I think, of Cat Sparks' debut novel, Neon Lotus Blue, and that's set yeah. in the same, that, that same kind of setup. So, yeah. I think, I think it's true, and I think that I should, in fairness to Kim Stanley Robinson, and we'll spend more time talking about that novel on a future podcast, there is a great deal of critique of, of, of capitalism, of, of economics, of, 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 of structural things that can still be repaired and improved after a catastrophe. I'm, but he's beginning with the, you know, the assumption of catastrophe. My question then, given what you've said about, uh, I'm now thinking gravity's rainbow is, is, is the archetypal kind of image of science fiction because the, the missiles, the, the destruction has created its arc. They're on their way. They just haven't landed yet. That's gravity's rainbow in the novel. It's the, it's the arc of V2 missiles. But this is the first time, or is it the first time, that science fiction is writing about a future which is not an assumed or aspirational future, but a future which most science fiction writers, I would be, I would venture to say, all responsible science fiction writers know is going to happen. Are we for the first time writing about a future a good chunk of which is inevitable, whereas in the past people might assume that space travel and moon colonization and colonizing the planets was inevitable, but that was aspirational, that was hopeful. Now we're talking about writing about a future that we know, at least in part, will happen to us. And I'm not sure science fiction has ever had to deal with that kind of a future before. Well, I mean, surely it had to deal with it somewhat through the 1950s as we lived through Alvin Toffler's future shock, you know. Uh, otherwise, how do you explain John Brunner and some of you know, the shock, shockwave writer and some of that kind of work? Uh, however, have we had this, you know, in different ways? Don't forget, for all that I accept the climate change, man-made climate change is real, and I think you do. Mm-hmm. Not everybody does. There's a lot of science fiction being written by people who don't accept that it's uh, a, a real thing, who see this as some kind of climatological cycling. Um, I also think there's a group of people who are writing who don't, foreground this kind of thing in their work anyway is it the only time 
I, I, possibly, though, I mean, we are talking about, for at least modern science fiction, a period of, what, about 120 years, maybe? Yeah, right. So, um, having dealt with the threat of nuclear war for a long time and having that not come true, this this is something of a new thing. And I, I guess it's going to be interesting to see how much people want to confront what's happening and what part of it they want to confront. Because obviously there are all kinds of political issues that are confronting the world around us that need to be confronted. You know, uh, it's simplistic for me to say because of who I am that, you know, we have the lack of plenty around the globe, the lack, you know, the, the lack of sharing. We've got people starving, people who are refugees, there's that. Uh, and that's obviously driven by climate change as well, but is separate from it in many ways too. Then there are, you know, political events in what is described, well, let's, let's just say the Western world, in, in Europe, in Britain, in the United States, places like that. And then there's the impact of, of man-made climate change. Those things are going to drive... Fiction, but I don't. But is, is it unprecedented? Maybe. Uh, no, I, I, I agree to some extent, and, and you, you made a couple of points that I think are, are, are worth uh, addressing. One is that certainly there are, and uh, and among current science fiction writers, many people who are concerned about crises that are ongoing that deal with other parts of the world. They're dealing with displaced populations. They're dealing with. Uh, horrifying things like weaponized rape, which occurs in Nadia Okorafor's Who Fears Death. She's concerned about what happens to populations in Africa, as is Jeff Ryman. And Jeff Ryman is concerned with what happens to populations in Southeast Asia, which Paolo Bacigalupi is also concerned with. So there, there is this massive turmoil in the rest of the world, which is represented in science fiction, in a way intended, I think, to call attention to it from those of us who are not experiencing it directly. So there are real crises in the world that are regularly addressed by science fiction. Uh, and and I, I agree, those are ongoing crises. I'm talking about something that seems to be unavoidable in the future. And I'm not sure, when I mean, you mentioned Brunner, for example, I'm not sure the shockwave writer is the best example of that because that okay. was the beginning of kind of the McLuhan information revolution. But Brunner's first international reputation, his breakout book was Stand on Zanzibar, which came out roughly in the same decade as Harry Harrison's Make Room, Make Room, there was a period of time in which science fiction writers, as did futurists, assumed that the big problem of the early 21st century was going to be massive overpopulation. And they wrote novels about that. Um, and it didn't happen the way they thought it was going to. You don't have a New York City with 40 million people as in the Harry Harrison novel. Let me ask you a, a different question, if I can. Uh -huh. Do you think that writers who think they are only writing entertainment, who are av avoiding politics in their fiction, and feel they're deliberately avoiding politics in their fiction, do you think they're kidding themselves? Do you think that the epic fantasy writer who sits down to write a fantasy series just for fun, that a military science fiction writer who sits down to write a piece of rollicking action-adventure, uh, that they're kidding themselves that those epic fantasies which are based on feudal political systems, those military fantasies which are often, or military science fiction stories which are often based on uh, imperial 
or colonial uh, models are so inherently political that you can't write that kind of fiction without it being political, even if you think you are. I, I think there are two ways of answering that. One, of course, is that in the, all fiction is political. I don't know who said that, but it, it must be somebody really famous. Uh, and, and you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the, the myth of overthrowing the aristocracy to some extent, of overthrowing the empire, it's the myth of Star Wars, it's the myth of... Uh, it's not really the myth of... Uh, of Lord of the Rings, because Lord of the Rings doesn't really deal with governmental systems at all. It eliminates government from that equation and makes it simply pure evil uh, that, that you're fighting against. I'm sure that some of these authors that I've talked to are very much aware of what the political implications are of the worlds that they write about, and some of them are very uh, conscious about it, but they're not going to let it interfere with what they think is a good adventure. Uh, others, I think... You can't really hold a formula epic fantasy writer to a set of standards that you aren't holding a formula romance writer to, a Nicholas Sparks to, and that sort of thing. I think there are writers who are perfectly con have convinced themselves and are perfectly aware of the fact that, or, or aware is not the right word, are convinced of the fact that their duty to the readers is to produce an entertaining story and not to look too far into the implications of that story. Um, one example is Tim Powers, who said to me, there's a, there, there are all kinds of political implications stories. He doesn't worry about that very much. When he does worry about it, and what I think maybe his best novel declare, it becomes very sophisticated. So some writers will, in effect, unfold the political assumptions of their fantasies, and others choose not to. And if, if the readers of those others choose not to, I mean, the fact that you're, you're breaking up, Gary. talking about an epic fantasy in which... Oh, okay, I'm sorry. If you're talking about a group of writers who believe that um, writing about scrappy peasants overthrowing some dark lord uh, over a period of seven or eight or twenty volumes... Uh, the, the, the people are reading those for the adventures that take place in the volumes, not for the assumptions that go behind how this economy came about and how the economy works. By and large, they don't spend a lot of time worrying about that. I don't think their readers want them to. Fair enough. Um, it is going to be, as I say, it's going to be interesting. It's been, it's been my feeling that generally writers who overtly try to be political more often than not are less successful than those who background what they're doing because of the the pressures it puts on the stories. Do you have a feeling for what kind of political science fiction you think you're going to see in the coming, say, five years? Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious about that uh, because I do think that there's a sense of immediacy uh, about political situations, about about the rise of intolerance, the rise of hatred, in fact, in the world, that is going to affect writers in a way in, in a way that we now see, and in in some fairly regular uh, in some fairly regular manner from writers like Lavi Tidar. Uh, I would expect to see a little bit more fiction like that, fiction which is edgy, which is uh, not necessarily concerned in terms of its setting and plot with the current world, but is clearly concerned with the circumstances of the current world as reflected in a historical situation. What I'm thinking now specifically is A Man Lies Dreaming, 
mm. which takes place in in you know in London in 1940. It's, it looks like a jokey alternate history where Hitler is a private eye, he lost the election, and so forth. But there's a subtext to it which is not such a subtext, which is about the rise of fascism in Britain and how close that came to actually happening during that period. Um, so I think we may be seeing more politically informed fiction, but no, I don't think we're going to see overt uh, satires against, uh, well, the current administration in the United States, as several people have pointed out, you can't satirize that. Well, no, you, you, you can't very much, uh, though, of course... We are only a week into it, so I think you know you need to give yourself another few weeks or another few months even to see just uh, what's going to happen. I mean, you may not want to see an extra couple of months, but I'm not sure I want to see another couple of months of it. I very much said it, Dan, on the opposite side of the political spectrum to the current administration. But having said that, um, I mean, I think just as a, as a contemporary comment, the real issue is there is so much uncertainty about what is happening. There's so much being done outside of what appear to be the norms. You can't tell just how extreme the results of some of these things will be that are being done politically today. Let me ask you, though, a non-contemporary question, or at least a not polit- overtly uh, mm-hmm. na- federal politics kind of question. That is, do you think that political steps within the science fiction field have an effect? Not necessarily on the world at large, but just, just in an artistic way. And the kind of things I'm thinking about are... 12th Planet Press publishing as a feminist science fiction publisher, things like Aqueduct Press publishing as a feminist science fiction publisher. There's, oh, yeah. I, know, I just, I'm very unhappy with myself that I can't pick, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, there's a African-American science fiction publishing Publish. press, which, did you say who it was? Sorry. No, no, I didn't say who it was, but I was going to add to the list PM Press. Which PM Press, certainly. radical. And, and can we just, can I just do, do it sort of a little quick thing? This is very sloppily stated, but I noticed for the record that later this year, PM Press will publish the first new polit- piece of science fiction by Samuel R. Delaney in decades. Interesting, although he did have a fascinating historical novella in a recent conjunctions, which again has political implications about, uh, well, about German philosophy, of all things, about Leibniz. So so I think that, yeah, we're going to see that. Does it have any impact beyond its readership? I don't think so. This is something we've talked about before. Uh, when, when you look at, first of all, it's difficult to talk about any fiction that has that kind of impact. The fiction we're seeing uh, cited now is not only 1984 and It Can't Happen Here becoming bestsellers. We're seeing a lot of comments about uh, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, almost 40 years old. Uh, about Octavia Butler's Parable of the Talents, which is 25 years old at least. Um, those things were enormously powerful. Uh, they were enormously uh, heartfelt. They were enormously frightening. And they did frighten some people. The Handmaid's Tale made it outside of the science fiction yeah. polder, if you will. Uh, the Octavia Butler novels are now beginning to break out a little bit and, and, and people are beginning to pay attention to them. But by and large, at the time, nobody paid attention to Octavia Butler's parable novels other than science fiction people. Sure, that was true. I, I guess, though, I look at the science fiction scene as I've experienced it over the past 30 years. And I would put it to you that it's a very different science fiction scene than it was in the 1980s when the women's press existed in the United Kingdom and when Interzone was a almost a socialist collective, it appeared, from... from 
afar. Now you have, I think, I mean, so for, to, for my money, within science fiction um, circles, presses like Twelfth Planet and Aqueduct have been enormously effective in promoting awareness of women in science fiction, feminism in science fiction, that sort of stuff. And now you've got the press I was trying to think That's of it. earlier, which is Rosarium from uh, you know Bill, Bill Campbell's press, uh, right. to publish some some great work. Uh, those sort of presses can have an effect, I think, on awareness within the area around them, and they are having an effect on the area around them. And that, that may be all we can expect. I mean, uh, this is one of the areas where you wonder about science fiction's ability to change the world. And this is something that science fiction has always talked to itself about. Uh, there are Worldcon speeches. There are Nebula Award speeches. There was a famous Worldcon speech uh, by Philip Jose Farmer, I think, in 1968, in which he talked about literally saving the world through science fiction. At a time when the country was in very much uh, the same kind of political turmoil that it is going to be in within the next couple of years, I suppose. Um, there's always been that feeling. Heinlein felt that. I mean, Asimov felt that. Campbell felt that. In the It's never happened. Science fiction has seldom, if ever, broken out and had much impact beyond the science fiction community. And even within the science fiction community, there has always been room for what we now think of as the puppies, but which was always a kind of libertarian, right-wing, conservative, uh, Turner Diaries sort of thing. So does the science fiction have any effect in the larger world, or will it over the next few years? I doubt that, but that doesn't mean you don't keep trying to do the work. Of course. You know, I would expect to see that, I mean, I would expect to see more intense, more committed political science fiction. Whether it will find a broader audience, I don't know. I think you're right that it's probably maybe always a niche audience. But on the other hand, anything which keeps people communicating, anything which pe keeps people motivated, anything that keeps people acting, you know, is really, really important. I think that's true, and the one the one optimistic difference I see uh, is that you find possibly under the influence of Stan Collins and other people, you do find Paolo Bacigalupi and Cory Doctorow turning to young adult fiction, which is a different and much broader area, and I don't know what impact either of their young adult novels have had within that world, but I remember talking to Paolo about it, and his, his commitment is a very committed writer, very politically committed and very environmentally committed, that reaching a, an educated adult science fiction audience, he could do that, but he really, really wanted to change minds or to help direct minds towards certain concerns, and that's why he wanted to do the young adult books. Yeah. Um, right after his enormous success with the, you know, with his multiple award-winning um, novel, the adult novel. Uh, and I think the same thing is true with Cory Doctorow, with the little, little brother and the... Um, um, Sequel to that, whose title is evading me at the moment. The, um, anyway, the idea was he is appealing to younger readers, the kind of readers that do create bestsellers. Uh, they do create the dystopian bestsellers. This, uh, the the, the um, oh, I'm trying to think of the Allegiant novels. Uh, the author of Veronica Roth, um, Stephanie Roth, Stephanie Roth. The Stephanie Roth and the Susan Collins and so forth and so on. So that's where I see some optimism. I, I, I see that there's a sense in which 
a lot of the young adult writers, a lot of the, a lot of the young adult readers that I've heard from directly and indirectly don't even think that they're reading science fiction. They don't think of it as, as being science fiction, but they really like this kind of uh, us against the system uh, fiction, which is which is kind of a separate genre. I'm not even sure that things like Little Brother or The Drowned Cities are so much a part of science fiction as they're a part of some kind of uh, homiletic young adult fiction, which if it's reaching that audience, more power to them. I mean, I even think something that seemed like a joke uh, at the time, I thought it was a joke until I read it, was Paolo Bacigalupi's middle grade novel, Zombie Baseball Beatdown. Yeah. And it's an absolutely terrifying indictment, in, 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 indictment of, uh, of, of, of the beef industry. And it spends a lot of its time pointing out in pure horror story terms to these readers who are probably 10 to 14 years old exactly where their ground beef comes from. Uh, and to the extent that it reached that audience, I think it must have scared the daylights out of them. That's where I think political science fiction might have an impact. I, I guess so, and certainly it allows, you know, the one, one thing that is open to people who are active in the science fiction scene is these, is that there are projects that allow them to be involved, to express themselves and to, to be present uh, in fiction and in the political argument, I think. So if you look at, um, oh, I guess now I'm thinking about projects like, uh, you know, Kaleidoscope and um, Defying Doomsday that came out from 12th Planet Press, which are overtly political texts. Right. Uh, I'm thinking about um, some of the books which have come out from uh, Aqueduct, which are overtly political and overtly about being involved. I'm um, thinking about the People Destroy mm -hmm. series. I mean, I think my Women Destroy series and the People of Color Destroy series, yeah. which, whilst the names always have seemed a bit awkward and clunky to me, nonetheless have been important, I mean, in terms of providing venues and voices and balance and all that kind of stuff, and have been... Well, the titles are, yeah, the titles are pointedly ironic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that's true. But the actual, you know, it, in it, fact, it them have been admirable, so... Well, I mean, to some extent, you know, when we expect science fiction to change the world the way science fiction writers have always wanted it to, they're making the same mistake that writers in general have made. I mean, literature doesn't change the world. Uh, you know, you, you can find... I was, uh, I was corresponding with somebody from the Library of America, which is uh, doing a volume of Rachel Carson's writings, interestingly enough. And the Silent Spring, which is about essentially about DDT, began with this really striking science fiction chapter about a world without birds and insects. Um... And it was kind of terrifying. And it, it occurred to me. I, I said to him, "This is the, this is one of the few passages of what could be described as science fiction that actually changed public policy in a radical way." I mean, after the book came out, you know, DDT was essentially abandoned, uh, essentially banned. And if you go back further, you can find mainstream novels like in America. You can find Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is almost unreadable today, but was enormously powerful. You can find Upton Sinclair's The Jungle, which dealt with the meatpacking industry and led to the creation, eventually, of the Food and Drug Administration here. I don't think science fiction has ever had that kind of impact. I don't but think I, I think that's not the but point, though, Gary. I don't exactly think that I don't think the point I don't think the point is to necessarily produce a work of fiction that overtly changes the world. I think what happens when you publish 
Defying Doomsday. I think what happens when you publish uh, The Water Knife, I think what happens when you publish New York 2140, is you change one mind at a time. And you only have to change the right minds on occasion to begin to change the world. That's how political fiction really probably has impact. Not on those rare occasions, as you rightly say, where uh, there is a direct observable connection. You only have to look at the number of people yeah. who end up in scientific pursuits to uh, who are inspired by works of, say, hard science fiction. You, know, you can't say that science fiction doesn't change the world when we live in a world that has been designed by a bunch of geeks who wanted to live in Neuromancer, even if that was a bad idea. You know... <laughs> So it, 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 it may not actually be a one-to-one correspondence. That's, that's the hard thing to rem- remember while you're doing it, I think, that creating these works won't necessarily change the world in the way that you expect, but if you change minds, which you can do, then you can change the world. They can change the world. It's, 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 okay, you, you, you corrected me by saying what I was going to say anyway. We can't measure the ripple effect. We can't measure what happens to somebody who, who reads something like, I don't know, the wind-up girl now and, 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 and thinks about the future. Uh, but, but it's there. You're absolutely right. The, the, the world is being built now by people who, if they didn't read science fiction directly as younger people, were influenced by people who did read science fiction. And I think that effect has always been there and always will be there. I mean, the assumption that we would go to the moon was in the minds of a handful of critical people in the late 1940s because of Robert A. Heinlein. Yeah. Um, and those people eventually, you know, got to see this. So, so you're absolutely right. You, you don't have that kind of mass impact science fiction that ever had that kind of mass impact, probably will never have that kind of mass impact. But as Charles used to tell us both about Locus magazine, he didn't, he was not so much concerned about how many people read it as about who read it and what they did and who they influenced. And that points to next week's show, hopefully. We hope that next week we will be able to talk about the Locust Recommended Reading List. I believe it comes out next week, so I think we should be able to talk about it. And, of course, its overt purpose of influencing science fiction for the year ahead as we look back. I mean, not in a... How can you say you're looking to manipulate in a non-manipulative way? There's an honest statement about excellence in the field and then, you know, place that out there for people to respond to. And, of course, at a time when the Hugo nominations are going and so on and so on and so forth. Right, exactly. And then and there are new Hugo categories that nobody seems to understand, uh, like the serious business. And, um, and, and, and the question of to what extent... Is it a bad thing to want to influence awards, nominations, and want to influence which books get recognition? On the one hand, that's what we all do. On the one hand, that's what I do as a reviewer. Uh, that's what anything in the field that communicates is trying to basically promote its own values. Um, and the fact that the field was essentially, over a period of two years, maybe three years now, uh, subverted by people who were doing that, I would argue, on the one hand, that the response to that ought not to be to condemn the people who tried to manipulate the Hugo Awards, 
But to wonder what happened to all the other people who should have been manipulating them in the other, other direction. No, I, I don't think that I agree much with that very much at all. I don't think anybody oh, should really? be manipulating anything. No, not really. Uh, particularly well, since... Okay, the, no, no, no. Not yeah, because there's... Okay. There's manipulation and there's influence, and they're not exactly the same okay. things. You know, when Locus publishes a recommended reading list, that is an attempt to influence the field in how it perceives what is excellent. Yes. When someone publishes a list and pushes people to vote specifically for that list, that's a different thing. And I know you know that, that that's true. Um, well, I'll, I'll stand corrected on that because influence absolutely is what I was hmm, talking about. Sure, you know, sure. There, there is, uh, because by and large, people should vote for, in, in Hugo or any other words, should vote for works that they have read and believe in. Yeah, always. As opposed to voting for works that they are told to vote yeah. for. Yes. I mean, I think it's fair, I think it's fair enough for creators to say, this is what I've done, and I'd love it if you nominated me, I, whether you're John Scalzi or whether you're Bruce Sterling or whether you're somebody who's just published their first story. I think it's all fine. Um, I think it's fine for people to run recommendation sites. Frankly, it doesn't really concern me at all, whether it be Locus, whether it be the people who run Sad Puppies 5 or 6 or 9 or whatever it is now. Um, There are other things which I think are less fine. But, you know, look, I think, you know, those people are moving on now. They feel like they've won the world, so they don't need to worry about the Hugos anymore. And so I guess we'll, we'll see how this year's Hugos go. I mean, I can't say that I feel very... About that stuff, I mean... In a world where we have the problems we have, the last thing I'm worrying about is what the sad puppies are doing. As I said to you before, oh, a couple of weeks ago and repeated, I've probably repeated since then, I'm enjoying the Hugos more than I have in years. I'm not even thinking about what the um, sad puppies may or may not do, really. Yeah, and one of the things that comes up, I mean, obviously we could be nominated for the best fan cast category, uh, and yet... If you recognize what's going on in a, in a in a particular category in a given year, you want you want to recognize the outstanding stuff. I mean, for example, um, there's the best related work category, which I could be in this year, but there are also books by really good books by Cameron Hurley and Neil Gaiman and Ursula Le Guin, and I don't think people should ignore those books. No. Uh, and to some extent, you have to promote stuff that is in competition with yourself in order to be honest about what you think was good in the year. Of course. I think if you're being an honest player in this, you have to recommend what you genuinely think is excellent. And in fact, as much as possible, avoid talking about what you do yourself and let it speak for itself. You know, Pretty much, uh, I think, yeah. believe it or not, I make an, I make a point of trying not to talk about what I do too much on this podcast. Uh, I'm more interested in talking about what other people do so that uh, it gets, uh, highlighted as much as possible. So, you know, but I guess we'll see. I mean, there are all kinds of interesting things came out last year. It'll be interesting to see what comes up in the recommended reading list. And, you know, we will keep our eye out for the the, the lists that are, that are evolving. I mean, the Nebula ballot won't be too far away. Your own Crawford ballot won't be too far away. Um, I would expect to see mm-hmm. the, we're you know, at the end of January right now, I would expect to see the Hugo ballot in March or early April. That's not too far away, really. And then we'll, it'll be on for young and old getting to you know, read all of that stuff. I mean, I've still got, I've still got stuff kicking around from last year to read, Gary. But we're past our hour. It's time I to wind still, up. I, 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 I still do, too. But I mean, the, what's interesting to me, and we will have to talk about this probably after next week, 
is that we're going through a kind of... Last year was not the best year science fiction has seen. The beginning of 2017 is okay, but it looks to me like getting into March and April and May, there are some really exciting books coming mm, out. Very much. Uh, so it could be an exciting... In the, in the, it's, it's, it's going to be an exciting period of reading for all of us. I think so. And on that cheery note... I think I will bid you farewell until next week. We're over our hour, and we don't want to outstay stay our welcome. We so are. we will see everybody, well, talk to everybody next week. Maybe with uh, Locust Publisher Lizzie Trombley joining us, I hope. Let's see if we can get her roped in. If not, we'll get some other guests up to sooner or later. Okay. Well, until that time, we remain now, as always, the Coochery Podcast.